Namaste. This is our second podcast from Narayana Ayurveda. Namaste. And I'm talking to Pandit Atul Krishna, who is the teacher for philosophy and Sanskrit and uh, Ayurvedic nutrition. So welcome, Pandit Atul. Thank you. Welcome and namaste to you. So what I wanted to talk about was I wanted to talk about the text Bhagavad Gita and its connection with yoga. How is Bhagavad Gita a text for yoga? Well, that's a great question. Bhagavad Gita is considered to be one of the primary texts for anyone who wants to understand the yoga system. People sometimes used to misunderstand yoga as referring to the exercises of doing asana and sometimes a little bit of pranayam. But actually yoga is very involved and there are many different systems of yoga. And Bhagavad Gita gives an overview of these. It gives an overview of Ashtanga Yoga, uh, Jnana Yoga, Buddha Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, and others. Sannyas Yoga also. Well, that's my second question. There's all these yogas out there. Um, so you're saying the yoga is not asana, and the yoga that is mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita has nothing to do with asana. It is something to do with the mind. Well, there are. <clears throat> it's a very good question because asana is part of yoga. Ashtanga means the eight parts, and the actually the first two parts of Ashtanga Yoga are yama and niyama. Yama means to follow some rules, some do's, and niyama means to follow some restrictions, some don'ts. For example, one should be clean, um, one should refrain from unnecessary indulgence in sex, brahmacharya, one should refrain from stealing, one should refrain from dishonesty and harsh speech and blame and criticism of others. So these are yama and niyama, and then comes asana, and then pranayama, because asana is meant to help with pranayama, and then there's pratyahar, or withdrawal from the sense objects, and there is dharana, or being fixed, attaining a fixed or steady state, and then dhyan, actual meditation takes place, and the culmination of the meditative state is samadhi, when one has achieved a full state of deep and transcendent absorption. So my next question is, who is a yogi? Because people go around talking that I'm a yogi. What really is a yogi? It's not someone who's practicing uh, three hours of yoga practice a day with lots of exercise, is it? No, if someone is doing the physical exercises of yoga, that is going to be beneficial, and that has clear beneficial physical and mental benefits for anyone who does it. It has been clearly established. But really, according to Bhagavad Gita, a yogi is one who is using the yoga process as a means to achieve the goal of union because yoga comes from the Sanskrit verbal root yuj, to unify, to unite. It's the process of union with the divine and coming in contact 
with greater spiritual reality and connecting. That is really what the essence of yoga is. And the different yoga paths, they simply give different alternative methods that one may follow. For example, bhakti yoga is the yoga of loving union. I want to be united with the divine in a relationship of love, of loving exchange, giving of myself with love. And that is just to give one example. So when a person takes up yoga or they want to be a yogi, where do they start in Bhagavad Gita? What do they do? What chapter? It's, it's a little bit complicated. That's right, it is. Well, so the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita is always the best place to start. The first chapter is really just kind of setting the stage for a dialogue. And it's a dialogue that takes place between Arjun and Sri Krishna. And in the second chapter, the second chapter is titled, um, in some commentaries, it is titled uh, Sankhya Yoga. It is following the process of Sankhya or enumeration to understand the truth. What are the different categories of things? And one of the most important things to understand is what is Atma Tattva. And this is described in the second chapter. So, the step one, the A of the ABC in Bhagavad Gita, you have to start with chapter two. And from there, what process of yoga do you follow? Well, understanding this, we go to chapter four in Jnana Yoga, Sri Krishna says that tad vidhi pranipatena pariprashnena sevaya upadekshanti te jnanam jnanenas tattvadarshanaha. You have to find someone who is realized, someone who is a bona fide teacher or guru who is tattvadarshi, who has vision of the truth. That's the person that we should approach and try to learn from them. Um, and it is not about making up a new idea to do something new, but it's really about understanding a path that is going to take us somewhere we've never been and we may never have imagined before but we want to set out you know my guru once told me if you're going on a journey of a thousand miles should you know your destination first well yes you should you might consult a map or you might ask a realized soul, a guru, someone who has seen that higher plane of existence in union with the divine. So let's say somebody wants to do yoga seriously. They are going to a yoga class. Maybe they have now turned vegetarian. They're following the, the yamas or some niyamas, whatever they can. And uh, their yoga teacher is really nice. How do they what do they do? They first thing first, you said Atma Tattva. So first thing they do is they realize that they're not this body. Can you tell us some verses about Atma? Well, yes, now we're talking about the actual what is Atma Tattva in the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita. And Sri Krishna starts out by saying that uh, um, there is for the soul, the Atma, 
there is no birth or death. These concepts of birth and death relate to the body. And we are not the body. This is a very important, and, and for some people it's a very shocking revelation, the idea that who I am is actually Atma. And Atma is a spark of spiritual energy. Uh, you cannot cut the Atma into pieces. You cannot harm it with weapons. It cannot be moistened by water or dried by the wind. These are all properties of the Atma. The Atma is never born. The Atma is eternal. It has always been. There is not a time when it was created. So Atma is basically the soul. And when a yogi is uh, sitting down, and there are verses in Bhagavad Gita that talks about, you know, a yogi is meditating within self, and the self that they're meditating on is Atma? Yes, that is um, partly true because um, in the Bhagavad Gita it is described that the Atma resides along with Paramatma. So there is a difference between the individual Atma who is minute in quantity and the Paramatma who is a representative of the greater whole. And meditation is actually on the Paramatma. And it is described that the Paramatma, this is from the Upanishads, Dwasuparna Sayujasakaya. They are like two birds sitting on the same branch of a tree. They are right together. So someone who... Who are the two birds? The one is Atma. One is Atma and the other is Paramatma. So Paramatma is the unlimited divine in a minute form residing within every atom of creation and within the hearts of all beings. So Atma and Paramatma, which is the soul and the super soul, which is part of the divine, are residing in all entities' heart, even if it's an ant. Yes, every entity, even a bacterium. Uh, within a bacterium, there is the Atma. And Paramatma is... What about a virus? Well, viruses are an interesting question because they are technically not living things. It's just um, a snippet of RNA enclosed in a protein capsid shell, and they bind to a host. So they could be said to have some properties of living things or properties of non-living things. Um, you know, the jury is out on that, but generally it doesn't seem that a virus would have atma although it can have an effect on the uh, body of a living being. So people who do yoga or call themselves yogi or looking at the process of yoga, in this, in this time of quarantine, what can you do? What can you take away from Gita to make your life a little better? Well, I would say first and foremost, this concept that you are not this body, um, you are the Atma, and actually your source of bliss can entirely be found within. We are not dependent on our creature comforts. The other thing that the, the Gita tells us is that the mind can be our greatest friend or it can be our greatest enemy. You know, look at when people are protesting and they're getting all upset because they can't go to Applebee's. That's the mind being the enemy because they are focused on the negative. I can't do this and I can't do that. 
and I can't live without going out and being in a restaurant or something like that. Or they're all going out in hordes and beaches without any um, mask and so on. So it's very hard to stay at home. So do you think the process of meditation is going to help all of us? Absolutely. There is a verse in the um, Upanishads that says, Ramante yogi no nante satyananda chidatmani itirama padenasau param brahmabhidiyate. The divine is called by the two syllables Rama because yogis, and this gets back to your question about who is a yogi, yogis find unlimited bliss in the Supreme who is called Rama uh, by many names, but Rama is one of them. And this is the Paribhasha or definition of the name Rama. That person in whom yogis find unlimited pleasure and bliss. We are carrying around with us the potential to realize unlimited bliss without end. Think about anything that we think of in this world as pleasurable. Everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And there's always some frustration mixed in as well. There is no unadulterated pleasure or real bliss in worldly things. But if we follow the process of yoga, even a little bit, Sri Krishna says, Neha bhikramanasho sti pratyavayo nivedite svalpam apyasya dharmasya trayate mahatobhaya. Even if you make a little bit of progress on the path of yoga, that progress will not be lost. Even if you die and you take birth again, your progress in, in yoga will be maintained and you will be able to resume where you left off. Whereas this is not so true. So here's a question for you. What yoga are we talking about? This, the bhakti yoga. So if we die in whatever yoga process uh, that we had done in this life, next life, we'll continue that. Or is it the ashtanga yoga? Which yoga are we talking about? Well, it is generally true of anyone on the path of yoga, but it is especially true on the path of bhakti yoga. Bhakti yoga is also sometimes called the yoga of grace because it is seeking union and grace and the showering of blessings from the divine. Um, and, and this is particularly a uh, recommended path for the serious spiritual adherent, someone who wants to get out of the whole existence, worldly existence, and who wants to be united in loving relationship with the divine. All right, so one more question. In Ayurveda, the, one of the aim and objective is life, or the four purusharthas, which is dharma, uh, duty, artha, uh, acquiring wealth by um, ethical means, uh, kama, lust or desire, and uh, moksha, which is liberation from the material body eventually going in higher planets or uh, heaven, as some people call it. And in yoga, it is samadhi. What is the difference between moksha and samadhi? Well, that is a very good question. Moksha is also called apavarga. In Sanskrit, we have the syllables um, pa, pa, ba, ba, and ma. This is called pavarga, and it is symbolic of um, four, five types of conditions that exist in this world, um, which are to, um, to suffer uh, working hard so that we foam at the mouth, 
um, to have be disturbed, to have fear, to have death, and um, <clears throat> other types of suffering as well. And moksha means getting out of that cycle of repeated birth and death and suffering. And samadhi is something that can be attained in this life. And the conditions that define the material world are present, but the yogi who is in the stage of samadhi is not affected. Now, there is the stage of moksha is also described as uh, jivan mukti. Jivan mukti means that even within this life, even within the life in this material world, one is factually liberated by dint of being absorbed in a higher truth, in a higher state. But moksha really technically is referring to the state of complete cessation, getting completely out of this world, because as Sri Krishna also describes in the Gita, there is another reality which is completely beyond this, in which everything is self-luminous and there is no darkness, there is no uh, birth, death, disease, and old age. There is no hatred and ignorance and envy and all of the other negative properties that we find in this world. And attaining that state is really what is moksha. Well, that was wonderful. We're going to come back and talk about different chapters from Bhagavad Gita. Keep on listening to our podcast. Namaste.